Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mangum Talks TV, the debut, the premiere, the very first episode. Spencer, how you doing? Doing well. So this is a new podcast, of course, Game of Thrones, R.I.P., um, in the books, it's over. So the Got Questions podcast <laughs> is over. In the books. Um, yeah, it's funny, man. That hurts. Yeah. <laughs> you like that? So we are debuting another podcast. This is Mangum Talks TV. This is just going to be a podcast feed where Spencer and I talk about TV shows we're interested in. Um, and it's not going to be specific to one genre or network or anything. We're just going to churn through um, the stuff we like to, to watch and, and the stuff we talk about anyway. Spencer, anything else you want to add? No, we taunted you guys with it. It is finally coming true. We hope you'll hope you'll enjoy it. Yep. So we are starting with a doozy of a miniseries oh, from God, HBO yeah. called Chernobyl. Um, obviously about the Chernobyl nuclear um, accident that happened in Soviet Union, which is now Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Spencer, well, let's talk about, let's do a little housekeeping of format first. Um, so the format we're going to do is very similar to the Guy Questions podcast. If you listen to that, we're going to do a recap. We're going to do best line. And then we're going to debut a segment, which I cooked up. I kind of forced it on Spencer called Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. the, the, the background for this comes from, I, have, I mean, when Spencer goes into a Wikipedia spiral, it is a thing of beauty. I have seen it happen many times. Um, and so I debuted the segment really hoping that I could prompt him to get in some weird Wikipedia spirals and just go to strange places during these episodes. And you've succeeded. It's just one of those things where if you give me the slightest bit of a go, give a mouse a cookie a topic, I will go to the most fascinating and strange of places. I think I've found one that's relatively on theme that I've become fascinated with, but we'll see when we get there. Okay. Um, and housekeeping, what's go- we really only have one active pod right now, and that's Mangum Reads. What's going on with Mangum Reads, Spencer? Mangum Reads, we have finished up our extended run of the fifth season through what would best be described as a somewhat rambly episode of discussing all of the many questions we had left over at the end of that book that were not answered, but were very fun to talk about. From there, we're taking a bit of a break to go on to a short story, as we often do before we move on to a longer tale. And uh, coming up this next week, we will be doing... Uh, a short story that won the Nebula, and I think might have been nominated or won the Hugo as well, named An Authentic Indian Experience TM, or Your Authentic Indian Experience TM. Specific, all, we all agreed to do it in the same format this time, because we got tired of BJ being the only person that was doing audiobooks while all the, all the rest of us read it. So we're all doing the audiobook version of LeVar Burton reading it, because we all were big fans of him when we were kids, and... This kind Love of it. Black Mirror shit is going to just play with our heads having, LeVar, having it come out in LeVar Burton's voice. So, Love it. Looking forward yeah. to talk, talking about that with you guys later on this week. Yeah, so go to LeVar Burton Reads, check out the uh, check out the book, and listen to Mangum Reads. Mm-hmm. All right, Spencer. Whew. We have got, I think it's five episodes of we Chernobyl. Do. And you've watched it all, correct? Hello? Spencer. Sorry, I lost you there for a second. Uh, now I can hear you. All right, I'm, I'm leaving that in. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> just a little behind the curtain. Mm. Uh, you've watched all the episodes, correct? I have. I mean, this show was such a surprise to me of where I saw, the, I had not really heard much about it until I saw the first ad. And the first ad grabbed me quite a bit. And then the dear God word of mouth that started thereafter. Yeah, absolutely. So highest rated show on IMDb ever. Not that that really matters. Mm-hmm. Um the most streamed series in HBO's history, so on the HBO Go and HBO Now apps, this is the most streamed, even more than Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, 
world class. We we purposely haven't talked about the quality of the show. We we, we waited till we're recording. Spencer, I got to tell you, I thought this was fantastic. I thought this was incredible. This is one of the finer shows I've seen on HBO, much less in general. Um, it was incredibly high quality, incredibly high production values, really well told story, reflecting an era that I always had background information about. I mean, I was an environmental studies major. I knew about Chernobyl. But seeing it played out from a human experience, seeing the cost and effort that was put in to fix something that really honestly could not be reasonably fixed was incredibly well done. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, there's a companion podcast, not that I'm trying to get you to listen to something else, but <laughs> there's a companion podcast that HBO put out called Chernobyl with the showrunner. And in it, I thought he, he he described this very well. He said, you know, this was a uniquely Soviet problem and a uniquely Soviet solution. That's a very accurate way of saying that. Right, yeah. So it's like, you know, you do the thought experiment of what would happen if Chernobyl happened in America. First off, I don't think it would. Because I think we have safeguards in place. We have mm-hmm. a, a bunch of stuff in place that this particular accident likely couldn't happen. But let's say it did. I honestly think we'd just put one big fence around it. Nobody, <laughs> nobody would go in because we would say we, we're not going to we're not going to lose fifteen people going in trying to you know deal with this. We're just going to put a big fence around it. Nobody goes to Vermont anymore, mm-hmm. and that's just it, right? Yeah. Uh, that probably would have been our practical solution. And as this show shows, if we had taken that route, the entire continent may have died before we admitted there was a fault to fix. <laughs> okay, well, before we jump into the recap, Spencer, I'm going to science. Are you ready? I'm surprised and looking forward to this. BJ, if you're listening, please forgive me for what I'm about to do. But I am going to try to explain what a nuclear reactor is and what actually happened to the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, Reactor 4. Okay, now, just just imagine then that I am the standard Soviet politician that they put in on this, and then you are the Soviet scientist trying to explain. Go on. Yes, so, <laughs> you're Boris. Um, yes. Well, first off, we're going to try to do the names, which is, we're shout out try. to us for that. Try. <laughs> because there, there's some, there's some uh, sideways names, but... All right, let's start with explaining what happened. And, and by the way, I'm not going to get down to the cellular level. So you're not going to hear me talking about like how neutrons fire and that sort of stuff. I'm talking at a little bit more of the macro level of what a nuclear reactor is, what happened, and then we'll jump into the recap. So first off, what is a nuclear reactor? So a nuclear reactor generates energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it generates natural energy. So you have something called radioactive decay, which we're all in a state of at all times. Your cells are slowly decaying. That gives off a little, some energy. Well, what they do is they take um, uh, uranium and mm-hmm. they enrich, they enrich the shit out of it so that this radioactive decay um, is amped up to a huge level. And so you have all of this energy being fired off in the way of neutrons. And when these neutrons hit each other, they explode and create even more energy. So how does this work? Well, they create these structures that are like really long cylindrical cement buildings. And Spencer, mm-hmm. do you know why the buildings are cement? You know, I actually don't. Why do they use cement in particular? Uh, well, because cement is is so dense mm. that these neutrons, when they hit each other and they bounce off, don't go through the cement because the cement is so dense, right? That makes sense. And we sense. see this. We see cement later in the series, so the, you know that's that's uh, it, it comes up again and again. So you have these long cylindrical buildings, and within it. You and, and these are RPMK reactors, right? Um, mm-hmm. These are a particular that, that. And by the way, RBMK it's it's a Russian ap- acronym, so I, I can't tell you what it is. It's just Russian <laughs> words. <laughs> but, it, it's just it's Russian. Sure, but it's an R- RBMK reactor. 
And an RBMK reactor um, is structured this way. So you have your, your long concrete cylindrical building, and in it you have a core. The core is made up of uh, graphite. Uh, it's made up of graphite, but it also has thousands and thousands of little pins in it that have been poked into the side of this graphite that all have enriched uranium. Now, it, the core is only a very small part of this large building, and within it, you have space for water. So water comes in. Well, why does water come in? Well, because when you have this core that's firing and creating all this energy, and all these neutrons are hitting each other and exploding and creating massive amounts of energy, you have to have a way of regulating it. You have to regulate it in two ways. One is to control the reaction how many neutrons are firing at a time. And two is to control the temperature. With RBMK reactors, water does both of these things, which mm -hmm. is dangerous. Why? Because you only have one way of regulating the reactor, and that's through water. If the water gets fucked up, you're screwed. You have a base for water. Obviously, you have pumps that are pumping water in. You have the core, and then you have a top. The top is about a 450-ton um, cement top on it right just basically and I know God knows how they got it up there but 450 tons boom right on the top and now how does this work well you have this enriched uranium core and you have a well for water well you have pumps that pump water in continually and when the water comes in it will meet the heat and the energy created from these firing neutrons release steam steam goes up there's a propeller the propeller moves that energy gets captured in an energy grid right so that's how this whole thing, that's the benefit of this whole thing. You have this naturally occurring um, energy that gets captured through steam technology into a propeller uh, and then put on an electrical grid. So, of course, the most important thing here is to keep water going. That happens through pumps. The pumps are powered by electricity. This is the fatal flaw of the RBMK reactor because let's say the power shuts off. Well, then the electricity that goes to those pumps that pump the water in that regulate the temperature of the core, they shut off. Well, what happens then? Well, they have backup diesel generators. Here's the trick. You can only go about 10 seconds without pumping water into the core before you risk a, a, a meltdown. And what a meltdown is, is it, the temperature gets so high that literally it melts into the ground. It just mm -hmm. melts down. And it takes about 60 seconds for the backup diesel generators to get going. This is your fatal flaw with the RBMK reactor. And the fucking most Soviet thing in the world is they knew that and they still put them in place and made them operational anyway with a sort of, ah, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> so you have this gap between the 10 seconds that you can allow water not to go in the core and the 60 seconds it takes for the backup diesel generators to get going and to flush water into the core. Well, what did the Soviets do? Well, they thought about it and they said, hey, I have an idea. Well, that big propeller right that the steam is going up and hitting this generating the energy that goes on the power grid that's going to still be going when the power goes out right it doesn't stop right away that's a big heavy propeller well why don't we reroute that excess energy down to the electrical pumps to keep them going for another 50 seconds actually really about two minutes so they have a little bit of a window until the backup diesel generators get going kind of a smart thing right yeah, it's kind of you're kind of trying to turn your generator your generator to a perpetual motion device at least for a short period. That were essentially it's powering itself, or at least allowing itself to continue to function for a brief period. So that required some rerouting, right, of the of the energy. There's like these special like um, basically when the power goes off, it trips this thing, which reroutes the uh, the excess energy from that still uh, you know rotating propeller down to the water pumps. The water pumps 
go back online, and that, that's a period of just a couple seconds, so you don't hit that 10 second window. It flushes water for about two minutes, and then the backup diesel generators start powering the pumps. That's great. Well, that what I just described there, a electrical shutdown, and then trying to get the backup diesel generators going is the safety test that happened the night that Chernobyl exploded. Mm-hmm. So that's what they were doing. They were, it, it, it's so ironic, but they, and I think I'm using that term correctly, actually. Uh, <laughs> yes, I don't actually, know yeah. anymore. Yeah, the, the internet's messed with me on that word. <laughs> but yeah, they, so they were running the safety test to make sure that if the electricity shut off, the residual power from the propeller could actually bridge that gap, that, that 50 second gap between when water needs to be flushed into the core to keep it stable and when the backup diesel generators get going. Now, what happened that night? They, they confronted two other fatal flaws of this design, because one just wasn't enough. Exactly. Um, so you had a team in place of folks who, by all accounts, were well-equipped to actually run this test. Mm -hmm. And they were ready to go. And another power plant, another nuclear power plant in Russia went down. And so they said, hey, Chernobyl, you can't, you can't go offline, because we, we have people coming home, and we have to, you know power their ovens and their lights or whatever until everybody goes to bed. So can you stay online until about midnight? And they said, yeah, sure, no problem. Problem with that is they sent everybody home who was otherwise equipped and ready to run this um, run this test, and they just supplied them with the night crew who were not remotely ready. And the, the head guy uh, who was in charge was Anatoly Anatoly Dyatlov. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, in preparation for shutting this down, they they powered down they powered down the plant slowly. The idea being, if we're going to run this test, we have to have this um, nuclear core generating the least amount of electricity it ever will. Why? Well, it's a conservative test, right? That way, you know at a baseline if if this is powering as low as it possibly goes, the propeller still has enough residual energy to bridge the gap between when water needs to go to the core and when the backup diesel generators get going. I know I'm in the weeds here, but just follow me. Mm -hmm. um, they powered it down, but the problem is the night crew powered it down way, way, way too much. They almost shut the whole reactor down. And this was just operator error. This was just, they just screwed this up. Mm -hmm. Now, what I didn't tell you about the design of a nuclear generator is that you also have cooling rods. These are rods that you push down into the core and it will soak up excess energy. This is yet another way to control and regulate the amount of energy that is coming off of the core and ultimately the temperature. So when the te when when the, the power went way, way, way down in anticipation of this test, they thought, well, we can't run the test now because there won't remotely be enough residual energy in that propeller, right? So it, it, the test would fail. We can't have that. We have to get that energy up. We have to get the heat up in the core. How are we gonna do that? Let's remove every one of the cooling rods. So all, they pulled every single fucking cooling rod out of it. Well, what happens? Water is being flushed in. There's no cooling rods to regulate the energy coming off the core, and it is generating massive amounts of steam. And now you have a spike in temperature, a spike in energy. That propeller is flying around, and it is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And they think, oh, well, we can't run the test now because <laughs> we'll tip our hand that we got let this thing get completely out of control. What are we going to do? And history is unclear on this, but somehow, some way, a button gets pushed. And that button drops every single one of the, re, uh, the cooling rods back into the core. Kind of the emergency Norm stop procedure. Yep. Normally that would be fine. 
But as Spencer alluded to before, you have a second design flaw with the RBMK reactor, and that is the cooling rods are tipped with what? Graphite. Why is that a problem? It displaces the water. When you displace the water, it goes back into the core, releasing yet more steam, and it basically acted like a trigger. You had an already overheated reactor. You dip the graphite rod, or the graphite tipped cooling rods back into the core. You displace the water. You generate yet more steam, and the core literally exploded. And when it exploded, that 450-ton concrete cap actually propelled into the air off of it. So think about how much energy you have to have to do that. The entire core exploded. All of that graphite that had all of those enriched uranium pins in it just goes flying into the air, and you have the Chernobyl disaster. Thank yeah. you. Uh, very well said, sir. A uh, couple, couple little tidbits I'll throw on top. Or, yeah, or, fire away. Um, couple just a ter- just 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 a terminology. Um, you, you said you said at one point that it's neutrons hitting each other. I would say it's really the neutrons hitting other atoms that then fire off neutrons. A kind of train reaction effect, but that's it's a debate of terminology. Everybody goes over. I describe it as a as a turbine rather than propeller. Otherwise, BJ will make fun of you. Um, and then the last oh, he's po- going to beat me up all oh, of course for that he, <laughs> BJ exists to do that to us. Um, the the only thing I'd say as well is just a little trivia at the end of just how much energy was going nuts in this thing as a result of the spiral effect that came from the graphite being inserted in the core in that massive degree. So the core is already unstable because of another design flaw in the RBK reactors that if it operates at low power, it is inherently going to fluctuate a a fair degree, going zero high in a way that's difficult to control as is. If you'd already take that difficult situation and put the graphite effectively trigger in there, the reactor went from something like its normal operational maximal threshold of like 2,800 megajoules to, we think, before it just exploded, 35,000 megajoules in like a second. Cap goes Ooh. flying, explosion happens, fire starts, world starts to end in a new and creative way that no one could have really seen coming. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, Spencer. Yeah, so you had great radio, cough into the mic. Um <laughs> yeah, so you the, you have resulting fires um, that are associated with the high amount of heat that was generated off of that core when it exploded. Few more facts about this situation before we jump into the recap. Uh, this happened at the Chernobyl nuclear facility. This was Reactor Four, and the closest town is called Pripyat, which is was in the Soviet Union, now is modern day Ukraine. Had a population of about fifty thousand people. Mm-hmm. We have absolutely no idea about the death toll. And the reason for that is a lot of people died of residual effects of radiation poisoning years and years later. Of course, the Soviets weren't logging all that information, so we don't know. Um, But multiple international organizations have done studies and tried to get estimates. And it's somewhere between 4,000 and 200,000. So we really don't know. (laughs) Not helped (laughs) by the fact that this is all this is happening in 1986, uh, which is roughly five years before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So already unreliable Soviet records, coupled with the fact that they were bringing in people from all around the Soviet Union to fix this and sending people out to all kinds of various places to avoid it, throw in that their then central system of records goes down from the nation itself no longer existing. You're looking at a very unreliable series of data to try to approximate from. So we truly will never know, and the only relatively certain accurate figure we have is the figure published by the Soviet Union itself as to the total deaths as a result of this accident. 31. 
31. <laughs> Yo, the Soviets are hilarious to me because when they lie, they just fucking lie. Oh, yeah. He's uh, very Trumpian in that way. It's like when Trump decides to lie, he just hits you with a doozy. 31? Are you kidding me? It's the ones that they just effectively couldn't deny because when you're literally burying them in lead-lined coffins and covering them in concrete, someone's going to have a question why that's necessary. So for those 31, there's nothing we could do. They're either literally buried in the plant and missing on that day one, or insulated for all time because they are now essentially radioactive waste. Yep. And you had 134 servicemen were hospitalized with acute radiation syndrome in the one day um, after uh, the Chernobyl explosion, of whom uh, 28 firemen died within months. Um, you had 14 radiation-induced cancers within the next 10 years from that 134 population. And just a bit of trivia here, Spencer, I did not realize this. Did you know that the other three reactors at Chernobyl remained operational until 2000? I did, and that is just fascinating to me. They never stopped running. It's wild. <laughs> wild. It's just this moment, this moment right here is just such a profoundly interesting view into the Soviet culture at this period in history. Chernobyl, as you just said, it is a uniquely Soviet disaster, a uniquely Soviet solution, and a uniquely Soviet background around it occurring. But yeah, it's, I can't believe they they had those reactors running, and you had you had by all accounts the people who were helping keep those additional three RBMK reactors online were all getting sick. Yeah. <laughs> so they continued to get people sick by operating those three other reactors. Well, it's now they're all down done so the mm. whole thing is done finally thank god i mean they're literally operating reactors in a place in the world of where in a 30 mile radius around them no one's allowed to enter they're still going in to make power under strict hour limitations of course for their own safety oh yeah <laughs> but I mean, what i mean this is it we can talk about this event in terms of the scale of the human disaster that went along with it but also its political effect too is colossal of where gorbachev the premier of the soviet union at the time the general secretary of the soviet union at the time has said many times in the future that among the many things that were causing the breakup of the Soviet Union during this period, Chernobyl was one of, if not the most important, as one of the controlling catalyst events for the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Yeah. You mean to say it wasn't just Reagan just pounding his fist on a podium? I, I would say Reagan tear, t Reagan's pounding a fist, tear down this wall, Star Wars, they all had their part. <laughs> um, I might say Chernobyl, Afghanistan, the Brezhnev stagnation, uh, Glasnost, Perestroika. There were a variety of other factors, but when the guy who presided over it says, yep, Chernobyl did it, it's an important event to keep track of. Yeah, and it makes sense, right? I mean, this was, this was an unmitigated fucking disaster. Do you want to start with the recap? Let's start with the recap. Okay, so we start with Professor Legasov, and he is at a table in a very cramped, small-looking apartment and he hits us with this line spencer i've done this before i'm doing it again i'm nixing the best line segment we are getting the best line with the first line of the series i'm going to give it to you what is the cost what is the cost of lies yeah it's not that we'll mistake them for the truth the real danger is that if we hear enough lies then we no longer recognize the truth at all what can we do then what else is left but to abandon even the hope of truth and content ourselves instead with stories. Boom! Best line of the episode. Obviously, the seminal line of the series. And what's fascinating to me is that the guy who, you know, show, the showrunner for this, who wrote this series, 
wrote that line before the 2016 election. Really? So, yeah, he did. He started this in 2015. Like, how on the nose is that in the modern political climate now? It, this show offers its own very effective commentary on the dangers of blind bureaucracy and the dangers of being will, willing to bury your head in the sand rather than confront a world-changing situation. And it is a hell of an indictment. Yeah. And uh, Legasov states that a guy named Dyatlov is the fall guy, and it makes sense. He was in charge that night. However, there are far greater criminals at work. Very ominous. Uh, Dyatlov doesn't get out scot-free here because he does say that Dyatlov doesn't deserve prison. He deserves death. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and did, Spencer, when you watched this the first time, did you notice Legasov's health, health was bad? I had a couple. There were a few hints that told me, I mean, it became very apparent after we see him in this first scene to then seeing him only a two year was it two years previously. I mean, they, yeah. they, they take a lot of pains to say two years on the nose after Chernobyl. Um, that his hair is thinning. There's some blood on a napkin that's nearby, but he's smoking like a fish. So you've got other other possible explanations for what for what the cause is. But smoking like a fish. I don't know what the hell I, that came out. <laughs> I like it. I'm gonna start saying that. Smoking, smoking like, like a like chimney. A fish. There we go. Okay. <laughs> well, I smoked mean, fish. Smoked fish. I get it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> don't even yeah, try. I, I don't know what I, that was. <laughs> I noticed um, the the napkin with the blood in it. Yeah. But like you, I kind of thought he might have lung cancer from smoking. I didn't know. Um, he hits us with another line. Very good line. Justice was done because you see, to them, a just world is a sane world. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. And I might say that when he's talking right now, he's talking into a tape recorder. Mm -hmm. So he's clearly, you know, documenting his thoughts. Uh, Legasov wraps up his tapes. He goes out to the street where it looks like he's being watched. Uh, He drops the tapes off and comes back, feeds his cats. I'll get back to this later. Smokes a cig. And then at 1.23.45, the name of the episode, hangs himself. This is true. Legasov did commit suicide two years to the day of Chernobyl. It's not clear if he did it at the exact time. Um... Also, uh, just a point of trivia here. Spencer, did you know they didn't have pet food in the USSR? No, I did not know that. Yeah. So the showrunner talked about this uh, in an article I read, I think. And, and he was saying that like he wrote the scripts and then he gave it over to like actual so- people who lived in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. to say, hey, is this like reasonable? And one lady flagged the fact that he had pet food. And he said, oh, no, we didn't have pet food. We just fed the animals our scraps. So if you look closely, what he's put, he puts out three or four dishes for the cat because he knows it's going to take a while for people to find him. Mm-hmm. And it's all like, it looks like chicken and rice. It doesn't look like pet food. That is interesting. I mean, I, I noted that it looked like some of the weirder pet food I've ever seen, but I had I did not realize that pet food was a capitalist ploy and that could not be used in the Soviet Union. <laughs> I think they were just too poor. But yeah, um, so this is, this is how we start. We start yeah. with Dyatlov with his tapes. Finishing them up and hanging himself. Spencer, your thoughts? It's a hell of an, of an intro chapter of where this is a masterly done intro chapter of where it tells you almost nothing about the series in context. Nothing about the story that's going to be the focus of the next five episodes. It is entirely a looking back moment. But it is gripping. It is giving us no wide array of knowledge as to what the hell he's, in, he's talking about. The show's been introduced by Chern- as Chernobyl, and we only get the name used like once in this entire spiel of his. But we are already invested in what has occurred. What has led this man to be literally checking his watch to the second as he's in the act of hanging himself? Why is he being watched? What is Who is this Dyatlov figure that deserves death for whatever happened? What is this madness that he apparently played an integral role in correcting? It's just a wonderful setting in terms of 
not putting us in any way in the moment, but casting a perspective on it that we're going to maintain throughout the series that is fascinating and gripping before we're even there. So I compliment them, and I'm curious about your views before I want to offer a couple comments about how this also frames how the series is going to do its own version of history with changes for its own theme. I loved it. Um, again, it, it asked a lot of questions, um, but I was locked in. I mean, I thought the, the writing was phenomenal. Um, and I, it asked enough questions that I wanted to keep watching, even mm -hmm. though things were really uncertain at the end of this scene. Oh, very much so. I mean, we're left with a bundle of questions, which the show then dedicates itself to answering, which is, again, just well done plotting in that regard. Yeah. All right. Do you want to you want to point out some things before we jump into the uh, the next part? Yeah, I'm not going to comment too much on the history as we go through. I mean, I know you, you know as much as I do about this, but there's a couple moments just to note here about how the show does its history of where this is not historical fiction. This is an, this is an historical dramatization, which generally pretty well adheres to the history, or at least various versions of the history. As we said, this all happened in the Soviet Union. It all happened in a period of where the Soviet Union was headed toward collapse. So some things we just don't inherently know for sure as much as you ever can with radiation, cancer, and everything else that comes between. But some things that the show sets up early on kind of sets how it wants to portray its characters. Um, some very basic changes, for example, uh, Legasov uh, was, uh, was married. He had kids. But they're never really introduced in the series because that's not really the focus of his character that they want to portray. Uh, also, uh, also uh, the showrunner did say that Part of the reason they did that is because his wife and kids are still alive. Yeah. That, that, and so that, they were just trying to shield them from that, you know, that, which that, shout out to him for that. Right. We don't know for sure that he died on the exact minute. He didn't record the tapes. He wrote them down. But all of these are oh, adding. Shit, I didn't realize that. Yeah. You, you wrote, you wrote, you, you wrote, you wrote down his notes and they were later done in audio recording as part of their dissemination among the various other scientists and journalists that got these records. Interesting. Okay. Um, these are all changes that are not necessarily integral to the story, but they're focused on making it a very much more personal experience. There are many times in the course of the show where the characters will do things or say things that they didn't necessarily say or were said by other people, but they're part of telling a concrete character-focused narrative about this through the perspectives and through the sights of three characters. To do that, they have to streamline. And a lot of the changes that they focused on were done for that reason. We see a few of them, or the early ones at this moment. I just want to offer that as many changes they offer over the series from the actual history, as many consolidations, streamlining, as they were, as were necessary to do, they aid the story while not detracting from the history. And I think that's a well-done way that you can do these kind of historical dramas of where there's no practical way you can tell the actual little story point to point. And that, if you're doing that, you're doing a Ken Burns documentary. You're not doing an historical drama in the way that an HBO miniseries can do. But you can do it with respect to the history, with, with an authentic feel and connection to history, even if it isn't perfectly accurate. And so even these early moments set up how they're doing that, but I offer my compliments rather than my criticism for how they went about that necessity. Yep, completely agree. Okay, we cut to Ludmila Inkatenko uh, in Pripyat, Ukrainian USSR, uh, two years prior, who was waking up in the middle of the night. Spencer, did you know she was pregnant right away? Uh, I, rec I recognize they gave us hints in retrospect that she's waking up in the middle of the night and throwing up in the background, in the ba bathroom, was a profound hint to that. But at this moment, I did not realize it. Yeah, me neither. Uh, but after she, she acts, it looks like she's going to make herself some leftovers. Mm -hmm. And really great cinematography here. In the back, we see 
two explosions out of her back window. She doesn't notice them right away. One looks a little smaller, and then one is massive. Um, and after a few seconds, it shakes their building, and her husband, Vasily, wakes up. Uh, we cut to a control room, and well, we have... Go well, ahead. One thing to note there, because it's one of the most creepy and effective imagery that they do in this entire show, is that blue light. So that is actually... Um, there, they, there's so much radiation that is oxidizing the air. Is that ionizing? Ionizing the air. Yeah, there we go. My, my notes are a little fuzzy. Ionizing the air. I assume that means something. <laughs> uh, he, he, as they're looking out over this, this the seemingly explosion as asteroids occur the distance, seeing this just radiating blue pillar of light ascending into the heavens as far as you can see. That's perfectly historical. All the accounts of time talk about that blue light ascending to God is just horrifying. It really sets up the show is that as much as this is just a drama, a mystery, an exploration of, of historical events, it also has a certain element of cosmic horror attached yeah. with the rate with what radiation yep. inflicted upon the world can be like. Yeah, I'd like to point out that our our friend BJ, we do multiple pods with BJ. He's an actual scientist, real honest to god scientist. I I like to think that maybe he pushed our pods to his friends who work in labs with him. Mm -hmm. And they're they're all just horrified at me confusing oxidizing and ionizing <laughs> and, and saying there was a propeller attached to the uh, nuclear facility. <laughs> did you ever read uh, the comic The Far Side back in the day? Sure did. It's a wonderful comic. He talked about before, this comic heavily focused on science and exploring the natural world. He talked about that one of his greatest compliments was how many scientists got invested in his work, hung up his comics everywhere. But he talked about the greatest burden was that they demanded a certain level of accuracy and would call you out immediately if you didn't meet that, if you didn't satisfy that. Well, so for folks listening, I have stretched myself here. I'm not a, I don't know science <laughs> worth a shit, but I've, I've done my best here. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I can. But we cut to the control room. And we have two guys, Leonid Tatunov and Alexander Akimov. And they are huddled over the control panel and yelling at Dyatlov about what to do. Dyatlov is the guy with the mustache. Dyatlov says, what just happened? Well, that really instills a lot of confidence. Um, Dyatlov is the guy in charge here, obviously. Um, and then he cooks up that the control system tank exploded. Uh, in comes another guy who seems to know what the hell's going on. And he said, the core is gone. Um... He tells Dyatlov that, and Dyatlov says he's in shock and orders uh, the other folks to get him out of there. Akimov, and, and this is like a really sweet thing that happens during the course of this episode, is that it's clear that Akimov is more senior than Leonid. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to reassure him, and it's just the sweetest thing. you know, Because we've all had that situation where you're at work and you have somebody who's just less, you know, more junior than you. And something happens and you're like, no, it's okay, like everything's going to be okay. He's doing way more managing, by the way, than Dyatlov ever does Oh yeah, I mean, the, in this the, scene. Go the, ahead. The, the relationship we see with him in this episode, particularly again when we see them again in the last episode, it's really touching. As you said, he's really trying to help manage and support a junior member of his team. Of where, after the disaster, he's like, we did nothing wrong. We got this. We can manage this. Before the disaster, he's like, I'm here with you. We can do this. Let's do it together. As you said, it's really, he shows what a quality manager he is in comparison to... Dyatlov, which compliments to Paul Ritter. Good God, does he make an interesting and horrifying character with that guy. Yeah, he really does. Um, but he, this is something like, did you watch the show, uh, the movie Gravity? Yeah, I did. So that, it, it, this is kind of similar, right? In the sense that like, when I was watching Gravity, I was like, oh no, she's fucking dead. She doesn't know it. 
the whole mo- the whole movie. I'm thinking she's dead. It's mm-hmm. over. Same kind of thing here, right? Where you're like, as soon as the core explodes, you're like, they're all dead. I thought they were all going to be dead. Because yeah. I, I didn't look up anything about Chernobyl before I, I watched this. Shockingly enough, I didn't know how a reactor core worked. I probably still don't. But I <laughs> fucking was astonished that any of these people lived. And some of them did. Yeah, it was... Um, the main senior guy is Topanov, right? Is making that term right? Is Topanov, Topanov, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he owned it. That at one point when he and the other guys are talking about because Yetlov is in such active denial that he's immediately sending away anybody from medical for medical support if they tell him the core has gone up. He's talking with the, the other other guys are talking among themselves, and I think he turns to one of the other um, plant workers who's being much more accepting of the fact that this thing is friggin' blown up, is to basically just tell him that okay, if you're right, we're all dead. A million people are dead. Is that what you want to hear? It's just like even the guys on the ground know that. We, in some ways, can't mentally accept that this has happened, because if it did, there's no limit to this disaster. We have no concept of how many people are going to die because of this. Absolutely. And that, that gets compounded by the fact that these guys had no idea core could explode. They didn't know that this could happen. So they're trying to process that potentially something happened that they did not think was possible. Plus, if it's true, they're all fucking dead. So yeah. it's, it's a lot to deal with. So Akimov is reassuring... Um, up Tunov for Leonid, and Leonid asks if he can taste metal. Very important. Very it's, important it's repeated, segment there. It's repeated yeah, several we, times. <laughs> we get that through the episode, apparently, and, and there's really no precedent for this because the amount of radiation these guys were being exposed to is, again, unprecedented. But apparently, when you get high enough, your mouth just tastes like metal. Um, great, great <laughs> little, yeah, great little moment there. Uh, Dyatlov orders water to be flushed into the non-existent core, and says about the fires, well, call the fire brigade. Which is a kind of flippant line. That it's very offhand, just like, yeah, it's a fire, call the fire brigade. And you're realizing in retrospect, okay, how many people died right then because he just flippantly said, call the fire department? Don't bother telling them what happened. Don't even accept what happened. Just call them. They'll fix it. Dyatlov walks out, and he, he sees a hallway with shattered glass. Now, if this was a control system tank explosion, I, I don't think it would be to the level that it would actually shake the entire plant. So he's looking around. Spencer, do you think at this point he knows he's wrong on some level? I mean, he's l- watching the scale of what happened, which they talk later about how big the hydrogen control tanks are. Sure, they can cause a big explosion. Not this. He's looking out of this shattered window on the ground, and he's staring at the still glowing graphite. That yep. has been expelled from the core. There's no mm. doubt. There's no question anymore. There was no doubt. I mean, there was no doubt in question. He was in the control room. You can even see him grasping to find an alternative. But now, when it's displayed visibly before his eyes in a way that even his very conditioned consciousness can't deny, we're seeing the growth of his criminal acts. Completely agree. Um, and then we cut to pictures of molten graphite, and this is a great thing that the show does because. The show understands that there are adults listening or watching this like me who don't know anything about anything. And they they lead you along. So when you see the molten graphite on the ground, this ominous music plays. And we see that over and over again. Where there are places where massive amounts of radiation are being exposed, um, they play this ominous music. Well, so that you can kind of get your hands around what what's who's the real villain here, right? Let's give them credit. The sound design of the show is incredible. 
I mean, yeah. They, they, they do so effectively do, like you said, they so effectively do repeated sound motifs. So even if we don't necessarily understand exactly what's occurring, the sound triggers the connection in our minds. I had no real concept how utterly horrifying the sound of a Geiger counter is. But this show yeah. turns it into the friggin' <laughs> Jaws theme in terms of the horror it stimulates. All right, do you want to explain what a Geiger counter is? Uh, a Geiger counter is basically a device used to detect radiation, to keep it simple, of where it is me measuring radiation that is being emitted in the background environment. In, in what measurement? It, there, there's going to be a fun thing over the course of the series, of where there are many different ways of measuring radiation, depending on whether you're using various scales or using the SI equivalent. Uh, this show uses rhodium, which is equivalent to RAD, in terms of radiation effect upon the uh, human body rather than upon necessarily biological function, which is sievert, which is the modern SI scale. They're essentially comparable on kind of like Ooh. a 10 to 1 scale, of where if you take the number of RADs divided by 10, you got your sieverts. But it makes it more complex of where over the course of this, they will give you both rhodium per hour, rhodium per day, rhodium per minute. They give you all kinds of different, all kinds of different uh, radiation exposure. See, I think they're doing that on purpose because I think they're confused. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, it, don't, they don't know how to – I mean, it's so high, they don't even know how to measure it. And we see that wonderfully portrayed in this episode of where the highest – they use every single – another term for guard counter and they use in this is dosimeter, same equivalent, yep. of where the dose you're receiving of radiation. Very, very effective term. The highest one that they have <laughs> apparently at the plant is 3.6 rotigan. Which is about 500 chest x-rays. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, like, like I points out later. Uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna post a we're gonna post a chart on our website, which uh, the wonderful webcomic XKCD produced previously, which just give you an idea. It's in sieverts rather than rotigan. Sorry, I'm using modern units, but it gives you just a rough equivalent of the radiation you get from your background versus the radiation you get freaking Chernobyl. Uh, it helped me in terms of conceptualizing this, but I it's oh, such a wonderful point of when all of their cylinders are buried at 3.6, but this being Soviet Russia and them being an all active willful denial, they just go okay. It, it says 3.6. That's what it is. But Which is the, possibly the dumbest thing anyone does in all of this. But when you have a decimeter that goes to 3.6, it hits 3.6, and you go, well, that's the number, 3.6, let's report it up. And, and at the point I'd like to make to you, and I actually interested you to hear your thoughts on this, Spencer, if they had made that connection, if Detloff had made the connection, okay, it says 3.6, but that's the max. We can't report 3.6. We need to say it's north of 3.6. Mm -hmm. Do you think things would have gone differently? Because it, it felt like to me that once he reported that up, it was like, oh, it, it was almost, it spiraled, right? Because but, that, that information keeps going up and up and you can't, you can't walk it back. The two things that he did shown in this episode that just set the, what's going to be the first day of response to this disaster, which cost so many extra lives, which delayed it, which delayed the fixing of it by another day when who knows what the cost of that was, were... Immediately seizing on the idea that it was the hydrogen control tank, all radiation is just coming from blown f uh, feed water that's being scattered about, which is only mildly radioactive, and then, as you said, the 3.6 rotigan. Him pushing those narratives, pushing that story up the chain of command, cost lives. It delayed the fixing yep. of this in a critical moment. Yep, it did. Um, then they do this cool thing. They played an actual emergency call from the night. Yeah. It, it's in Russian. They... they I mean, the, the series is in English. Um, something we haven't talked about, Spencer, but they purposely don't use Russian accents. Mm -hmm. They allow it, and they allow the actors to just speak in their natural accent, um, which, which I think allows for better acting. And you also don't get taken out of it with the sort of comic, like Russian accent, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's meant to be a real. It's meant to be a real experience. It's meant to be a character drama. It's meant to focus on their individual 
way they weathered this disaster. I agree with you that if they if they'd put on Russian accents, it would have come across as hammy, or it would also have come across as maybe even a exotification or stereotyping of the characters in a way that's not what their focus is. They're not offering. If, been, if anything else, this is very reaffirming and congratulatory of the willingness of the Soviet people to endure these costs necessary to fix this, rather than being a, ah, let's look at the funny Russians kind of thing. So I, yeah. I agree with their decision here. Yeah, and the showrunner actually said that part of the reason he did this, and I think this is really smart, and future showrunners should do this as well, he says, when you give an actor an accent, they act to the accent. Yeah, very true. And and they're not acting as, as purely as they can if you just let them speak in their normal sort of tones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, we cut to Vasily. He's getting ready to go to the fire. Ludmilla notices the bluish light, which is ionizing the air, um, coming from the plant and ask about, vaguely about chemicals. This is one of the first signs we have of just how ignorant the folks in Pripyat are to the potential dangers of a nuclear reactor. Yeah, this line and then a line that they cut, a, cut with pretty soon afterwards of inside the hospital of where the lead, apparently the lead doctor asks, why do we need iodine pills? Just between throw in those and the fact that the friggin' nuclear operators don't even know the parameters of how their nuclear reactor works and the risks of doing certain things, you just you really get the feeling that how this is not a community well equipped to actually do as they're doing. Not they, at all. They're missing lots of key information down the pipeline. Yep. And a guy at the plant, um, I don't know his name, who said the core exploded. Ask another person for a delimiter. It reads 3.61. The highest it will go. A guy goes up a stairwell in an attempt to get people out. Someone throws up on him. Um, vomiting uh, uncontrollably is one of the first signs of acute radiation poisoning. Um, the first guy's uh, face is starting to burn and he's throwing up. Um, this is roughly three minutes after the explosion. It, it, it really is well done in these moments when they go to the plant workers of just, this has become a horror story. This has become, you know, yep. Cthulhu has appeared on Earth and we're all starting to feel the effects of it. Uh, yeah, the, the red faces, man. That's, whew. The, yeah, the radiation burns, the sudden vomiting, and then, again, Dyatlov is such a wonderful center to this episode of his continual active denial as he's watching people die in front of him. Now, in the control room, the control room is... Not So basically, this explosion went straight up. It didn't go out the sides. So as long as you're on the sides of the nuclear reactor and you're not near all that core that was expelled out, then you're it's not great, but you're okay in the short term. So yeah. that's where Dyatlov is right now. It's an important thing to note that when we say okay, it's just a very relative sense. This is the not active death version of okay. Yeah, it's, he'll be dead within... Well, actually, Dyatlov lived to like 1995. Uh, yeah, he did. He died of cancer. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He also gets out of this situation a lot faster than anybody else does. <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, Detlef is still pushing for water to be flushed into the core. He orders someone to go to the pumps to make sure they are on. The folks there know this is a dumbass plan, um, but Dyatlov takes the 3.6 number at the actual level, ignoring that it's as high as it goes. It's interesting because they convey that to him. They say 3.6, but, and then Dyatlov cuts him off. He goes, 3.6, not great, not terrible. Yeah. Uh, the firefighters arrive on the scene. One guy picks up a piece of graphite. You have that ominous music playing. Um, that apparently did happen. People mm-hmm. did pick up the graphite, just not knowing what it was. Uh, Vasily wisely tells him to put it down. Um, and he asks if they taste metal. Second time we we have this mm-hmm. uh, from a character in the show. Um, and it, it, it's a real subtle thing, but the guy who picked up the graphite walks away kind of waving his hand. Mm-hmm. You know, the way you do if you like touch a, a hot like plate or something? And you kind of you shake your hand. He's doing that as he walks away. 
and you cut to him like a minute later as they're sort of putting off the fire. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he, as he's pulled off his glove, his hand is like a melted ruin. I mean, the yeah, burn. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, we're, we'll get there. Um, workers are walking down to check on the pump. Uh, they see another guy carrying someone dying. Um, and they they just openly discussing the fact there is no core. Um, they're, notice they're, here that... Sorry, but notice yeah. here that they push back on the fact that there is no core based on what Antimov said, not Dyatlov. Mm-hmm. Because the guy says there's no core, and he goes, no, Antimov said. It just, yet yet again, another little hint here, that Antimov is the real manager here. It's, yeah, he's the one that's really in charge, that these interns have been sent by order of Dyatlov, but through Antimov to do it, they're respecting Antimov, not Dyatlov. But it again just shows that, it, it, this is a very just common human response to disaster, is that, confronting this thing that is so damn big that none of these individuals can have any degree of control or even understanding of, they find comfort in the idea that they have orders and they're going to follow them, even if they know it makes no sense. Again, uh, a very Soviet solution. Very so, very human solution, too. In any kind of disaster situation, there is comfort in things going according to plan. And the plan here is that a superior has given me an order, I'm going to follow it, and that's how I will contribute. I don't need to think right now. I don't need to try to conceptualize the world-ending scale of what's occurring around me. I'm going to do this. See, I feel like that that you're that's a little bit of your personality coming out here because because <laughs> I think that's that's how some people would react. Maybe you, I don't know. I'm not here to psychoanalyze you, but mm-hmm. I, I do think that there are a lot of folks, particularly in western society, who would be like, "Go where? You fucking go down there. I'm not fucking going down there." Can you imagine like if everybody's running around screaming the core exploded, mm-hmm. and then you tell Levi, "Hey Levi, go down and check on the water pumps." Oh yeah, yeah, sure. He's gonna sure, tell you to fuck sure. right off. Like, <laughs> like that's so. I, I think, do think that's a difference, right, in the Soviet society because they do rely on these hierarchies. And to your point, I mean, I think that does provide them some level of comfort in this situation. We are going to fan fiction the crap out of this later in terms of debating what the U.S. response would be to this disaster. We've already talked about the end of Vermont as an occupied territory. <laughs> we're we're going to by the time we finish the series, we are going to discuss what we think the our U.S. response, maybe even our individual response if we've been there on day one. Isn't that such an American thing we're doing? We're like, yeah, well, let me let me think about this through the context of America. Because <laughs> we're exceptional. We're, we are going to culturally appropriate this thing on minute one. That's what we do. <laughs> we cut back to the firefighters. And to your point, the dude's hand is literally melting. Uh, Vasily sees this. He knows it's it's melting because of the graphite. He saw the guy pick the graphite up and he looks down at his foot. There's a fucking piece of graphite yeah. there. He knows they should not be there. Yeah, but he, I mean, it's just the utter tragedy of his personal story on this. And it, I, would you agree that Vasily's story of this is one of the most heartrending and difficult and horrifying of the individual tales that they tell? Um, but it even I starts with him and Le- Leonid. Oh, yeah. Really, really got me too. But yeah, go ahead. But it starts with he doesn't need to be there, he's not on duty. He voluntarily went because he wanted to support his friends. And he's there already aware that something is wrong. Already aware that this is something that was not explained to us that's outside of our control. But all we can do is just continue to do his duty because what else is there? It's either that or just run away. So question for you. Um, I know that like, the actual truth of this is that Vasily did go in on his own. But I think in the show they portray it as he's called in. Because he says, he has this line to uh, Ludmilla where he's like, yeah, they're calling everyone in. This is a big one. 
Yeah, they offer conflicting line there where she says, you're not on duty. And then, she's, and then he responds, well, they're calling everybody in. But as you said, the actual history is he voluntarily went because there was a yeah. disaster and his friends were going and he wanted to be there. Oh, man. And he, the fact, and this is yet, I mean, I, I, I'm just, I watch this and I walk away thinking what a terrible person I am because I would have heard there's an explosion at Chernobyl and I would have gotten in the car and I would have gone as fast as I could the other way. <laughs> For as long as I could, and I never would have looked back. Like, I'd have been like, I'm out. Yeah, Peace. We're living in a world of where we know what a nuclear disaster can be. Where we yeah, know what point. the human effects yeah, yeah. is. They aren't. They, they don't know. I mean, they, I don't even know if this is accurate or not, but they, when we see Boris, uh, pronounce Boris's name for me. Sh- uh, I got you. I got you. Give me a second. Uh, Boris. Sh- damn it. Yeah. Gotcha. Got but they, they offer Boris Shabina, who is, you know, on the Council of Ministers in the energy production field, needing an explanation of the actual operation of a nuclear power plant. Don't know if that's necessarily historical or not, or just talking to us as an audience, but it really does hit the point of, this is technology that the bulk of the Soviet public, particularly the individuals living around, have no idea what works or what its threat can be when it really goes pear-shaped. Well, but this is a... Goes pear-shaped. Good. Um, no, so this is something that I think is both great and terrible about the Soviet Union. And that is it's very much a worker society. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times these folks who are in leadership positions are actually old plant workers because they they value that. They value, okay, this guy is a company man. He's a party man. He's been here for 15 years working hard. We will elevate that person mm-hmm. as opposed to the actual subject matter experts. So you end up with somebody like Shervina who in that position because they came up through this system as opposed to, okay, let's take somebody who actually understands this, right, right, from a university, whatever, and plug them into a leadership position. And it was one of the main marketing events of the Soviet Union for so long is they were trying to say, you know, the West talks about how, you know, you can go from rags to riches, but really you're only locked in a position of poverty throughout all your lives. In the Soviet Union, anyone can rise through loyalty to the party, through dedication, through hard work. Anyone can rise to a wonderful position of power. It became less true over the Brezhnev era, but it was a key part of who they represented themselves to be. And we see over the course of this how, while that can be inspiring, you know, that could be the worker, an element of the worker utopia they're trying to put on the face of the earth, there are downsides to putting people who aren't armed and equipped with the specialized knowledge and ability to perform their position being in that position of power. Exactly. Uh, back to the recap. Two guys go, they're, they're, it's three guys basically, and they're going to look to see what the hell's going on. Two guys walk in and they see that the core is exposed. It's exploded. It's on fire. And they pretty much start burning instantly. The guy who opened the door, he actually did not go in. He right away has burns on his side. Now, the show is going to portray this guy as having died uh, later. They they don't literally show it. It looks like he did. (laughs) But in Hella imply it. That guy actually lived. Yeah. Badly. Uh, Badly He lived. Yeah, he, they took him to Moscow and they did skin grafts on him and it took him about a year and a half. But his, the, basically the side that was exposed in that door was just burned all the hell. But yeah. he didn't intake enough radiation to actually kill him. The two people who went in and looked at the core, dead within weeks. And, and that anyone who actually looks down at the core is going to die very quickly. And again, the sound design of the core, of yep. just the, the look of it, this radiating power of god on the face of the earth the sound of this like wailing angels that's coming off this thing is so horribly terrifyingly perfectly done spencer are we just going to give all the emmys to this show uh, sure 
Yeah. Let's just give them. Like, almost like that year with the Tonys with Hamilton, where it was just like everything just went to Hamilton. (laughs) Can we do that with this series? (laughs) I like this series so much, and I begged Sarah, my wife, to watch it for weeks, and she didn't because I think she was like, I don't want to really want to see this, like, horrific thing. Mm -hmm. But on Friday, she started watching it and binged the whole thing. She watched it all in one day. (laughs) It it, it was fun for Bridget and I of where uh, I wanted her to watch it, and she was like, oh, that sounds, like, really depressing. I want to do it. Um, we were using episodes of Deadwood as the more happy thing to watch alongside it between each episode. <laughs> yeah, we, we, whenever you can, whenever you can have breaks with Manifest Destiny. <laughs> Deadwood was our metaphorical ice cream on this situation. That's so funny. But um, what, go ahead. In ter- it's fascinating to read about what happened to each of the, each of these workers, the fire, and whatever else, because you really just see how random and unpredictable radiation can be. Yeah. Of where one guy can get a dose that should kill him, and he lives. Dyatlov got a dose that should kill him. He suffered extreme acute radiation poisoning and lives for decades afterwards. Other workers get substantially less of a dose and are dead in days. It's just, it's really random, and that makes just the, the, the idea of radiation exposure that much more terrifying. It is, but what, I think one of the things that the show is telling us, and that it, it bore out, is the amount of time you're exposed is so crucial. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Because Dyatlov, to your point, he gets out of there pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, these other folks stay longer. But anyway, we cut to Ludmilla. She's anxious. She's outside. Her neighbors are going to the railway bridge to get a better look at the fire, and Ludmilla won't go. That's yet again showing on some level. She understands. She. D- I think it's very basic in her mind, but mm-hmm. she just knows there's chemicals there. This could be a problem. I mean, <laughs> You're, well, we're, again, let's let's culturally appropriate this and do our own individual response rather than what the characters actually endured. But if you see that friggin' blue light radiating into the sky, like you, I'm driving away. Nope, I'm out of there, man. <laughs> I am noping right the fuck out. I'm going until I can't see that light in my rearview mirror. That's that's the distance I'm traveling to. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that we in America we have this healthy distrust of government, yeah. <laughs> right? Whereas there they didn't have that. So when when the government was saying it's fine, they actually believed it. Me, I'd be the government would say it's fine. I'd be like, I don't fuck. Like I just don't believe you. Like, and in by the way, maybe you're right, but what's the harm in me just getting the hell out of here? Yeah, but right, it, that that's when I know I'm gonna be okay. It also reflects the differing levels of freedom of transit that we have in the in our country. I mean. In parts of the Soviet Union, you would need papers to cross into different parts of the Soviet Union. Like if you were crossing between like Ukraine and a different Soviet Republic, you'd need papers to explain why you were doing that. For a lot of the original nuclear researchers that helped build the bomb for Stalin, they ceased to exist as people the moment they were assigned to the project. Much less could leave the plant they were working on. They did not exist outside of working there. That, that's the level of freedom we're talking about at different stages of the Soviet of the Soviet Union in terms of yeah. your ability to leave what you've been assigned to do. Which is why when we talk about what we do, it's so ridiculous. But we're going to keep doing it anyway. It's fine. Um, yeah, a guy who looked into one of the guys who looked into the core comes down. He is burning, and he tells Dyatlov, Leonid, and Akimov that there is no more core. Uh, Dyatlov is still in denial. Um, he even orders Akimov to call in more people. What the fuck? <laughs> Bring the in the day shift? After. Bring people in? Uh, and Akimov looks like he's going to disobey Dyatlov, and Dyatlov threatens to tattle on him, basically. As he says, that basically, you know, I got to go, you know, give a report about what happened here. It'd be a real shame if that report didn't, you know, portray you in a positive way, which is just a shit move. 
It's also um, an interesting little bit of historical. It, it's a little bit historical t- uh, tidbit here of when he dismisses the guy. He just kind of flippantly says, ah, "It's just you know the, the feed water's mildly contaminated. He'll be fine. I've seen worse." What? Uh, just the level of now. But it also is tying into a bit of his history that they don't explain here because they didn't really want to go into this background. Dyatlov, like, very soon after he graduated, went to installing nuclear reactors on submarines and got a radiation dose of, like, 200 rem, which gave him mild radiation sickness. So he has a personal connection to this, and when he's saying, I've seen worse, he actually... He actually has some credence to that statement because it, the foundation of his career was him getting radiation sickness from various accidents. So he's definitely not seen worse. <laughs> but I, <laughs> sure. I take your point that he he's like, okay, well, yeah, I had radiation sickness and I got through well, it. So this guy will be okay. Yeah, I more mean that he's tying into his own delusion of where, right. you know, yeah. I've experienced this. I've endured this. This is clearly just this thing I'm conceptualizing it into my mind rather than what it actually is. Yeah. We cut to the hospital. And some old guy is treating pregnant women. Mm-hmm. And a woman is watching the fire and she asks about iodine pills. Um, why is she asking about iodine pills, Spencer? Iodine is um, used primarily to help prevent radiation exposure to one of the first areas of where it is taken in, your thyroid, of where yep. it prevents absorption of those kind of um, radioactive elements in the thyroid and prevents the most common form of cancer that can result from radiation exposure. There you go. It does um, not protect. It really is used for that. It's not like, you know, freaking rat away from fallout. It's designed for that one thing. But as it is the most common effects, it is an important thing to take. Yeah. I mean, you notice the people who are in the know immediately start taking this stuff. Yeah. It, um, one of the things that's also shown right here, which is, again, a, a positive statement about the Soviet Union, is how much women are involved in all positions of various power and industry whatever else. And how long... I'm going to tweak that just a little bit. Please. Um, I think government. that, yeah, it's specifically in the scientific community. True. Women yeah. women were empowered in the scientific community because they were in an all-out, basically, science race with America. Mm-hmm. And so they literally just wanted the smartest person. But everywhere else, women were suppressed. Right. So you had this weird dynamic of, like, in every facet of society, women were less than. But if you were in science, you were in the STEM field then women could, could go as high as you could, right? Right. And they, they used that as an advertisement against the United States. It was driven by necessity, but they used it as a women's empowerment movement in comparison to the United States. It also was true in the military during World War II, where women served actively in their own combat units in a way that they still really can't in a lot of countries in the West. Uh, but it's, as you said, very much driven by a necessity-motivated function of, we need this, women can do this, fine, we'll let women do this, to, but basically no limitation. Yep. We cut to a government-looking building, um, and Viktor Brokhanov, the manager of Chernobyl, is there pacing around waiting. Um, and Nikolai Fomin, who is the chief engineer of Chernobyl, shows up. And together they walk downstairs into what looks like a bunker, and Dyatlov is there. Again, Dyatlov pulled out pretty quick. Um, yeah. I love their opening line. Of where they had a little phone call when they called it. They both need to be there. Their opening line is when the chief engineer is talking to uh, Fomin as they're walking in saying, Okay, first things first. We both know that we didn't cause this, and we can be reassured that no one's going to blame us this. That's their first thought. It's yep. Not, let's yeah. find out what this is. It's that, don't worry, we can't be to blame. Well, and Dyatlov knows this, because one of the first things he says to Brokhanov is, well, okay, no one can blame you for this. And Brokhanov has this great line that says, of course no one can blame me for this. How can I re- be responsible? I was sleeping. Yeah, that's a wonderful line. Yeah, because that's how responsibility works. Yeah, um, the buck yeah, does not stop here at any point. <laughs> they report the radiation level of 3.61, uh, or Dyatlov does, and they're all like, okay, well, that's not so bad. 
<laughs> his line is, that's, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact line he says, it's, uh, well, that's not great, but it's not horrifying. I love the little comparison lines they do on that. When it is, in fact, horrifying. Yeah. Um, now we cut to the saddest, I think, maybe, I don't know, top maybe three saddest scenes of the episode, and that's the people on the bridge of death. Um, so this is, this is I want to go through the, the recap, and then I'll actually explain a little bit of history around it. So there's people on the bridge. These are the people who were talking to, who were talking to Ludmilla, who said, hey, come, we're going to look at the, uh, we're, we're going to check out the fire. They're standing on this bridge. They're drinking vodka. They're watching the fire, but the fire now has created a fallout. That is, the wind is shifting to them. Um, one thing to point out is they're, one guy actually starts talking about using vodka to cure radiation poisoning, which the most Russian, Russian thing yeah. I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Holy shit, that's so Russian. Um, and they're commenting on how beautiful the light is. By all accounts, the light was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fallout starts to drop on their heads. Here again, we get the haunting music. This is a historically accurate scene. There was the bridge of death. People did go out and look at the fire. They did have fallout come on, fall onto them. And by all accounts, no one who was on the bridge that night looking at the fire ended up surviving more than about a year. It's one of those things of where it is a very common story. And it's one of those stories that we inherently can't verify due to limited records. It may be an urban myth. There are several, there are several journalists who said they've talked with people that were on that bridge that day, but who knows this many years afterwards, whether that person was actually there or lying. They're telling a story, which is certainly part of the, part of the history in terms of people talking about it. Details, who knows? One thing they do say that exaggerated to a certain degree was the visible nature of it, of where the ash itself is helping the audience get a visual depiction of it. We have no reason to believe the ash was actually falling at that point that far away yet. But it's, again, they're talking to the audience, they're providing a visual depiction of it in a way that works and makes it all the more horrifying to see the children playing in it as if it is snow without the slightest degree of warning what actually is happening to them right now. Yeah, and it's a good point. This is not... This isn't fact, but and I have read where folks, reporters have said they talked to people who were on the bridge. There is way more accounts of verified deaths yeah. of people who were on the bridge than people who are still alive claiming to be on the bridge. Yeah. But again, we don't know for sure, uh, but it is a powerful scene. Very much so. I mean, it is really just, again, this is just a further example of how if they had proper people reporting this down the channels, this town would have been evacuated within freaking hours if they could have. But instead, people are just going about their lives utterly without any knowledge or any warning as to the scale of the disaster and its effect on them that is now descending from the heavens upon them. It's that 3.61, man. Oh, okay. that, that Chest that x-ray. Was, that was so fucked. When they reported that number up, that, that stopped all of these mechanisms that should have occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, a worker at the plant finds another who is dying. Um, and he's the guy who opened the door, got the burns up his side. I, I think he's dying, to your point. We don't know that for sure. But the guy asks for a cigarette, which I think is funny. Uh, and water starts to drop on their heads. Now, Spencer, I don't, I've watched this God knows how many times. I can't figure out where the water is coming from. It's either a busted coolant tank or it's the water that the firefighters are spraying in. What do you think? I interpret it as the water the firefighters are spraying in. Um, but I, I agree with you. It, it, it provides a haunting scene. It provides a very interesting visual as the water is descending upon them, as this guy is like, can I help you? It's over. And then yeah. you you cut to the fireman right afterwards. I think with them cutting to the fireman and them now saying, hey, the fire's out. We got to go in there to fix this. Uh, that they're implying it was the, the, ho- the, the fireman's hoses that is now descending on this just utterly shattered plant. And again, 
The visuals of this plant should have put anyone in the know that this was not just a hydrogen tank blowing up. This yeah, plant seriously. is deformed and blown open to the world. I 100% believe that the firefighters, when they got there, knew immediately that this was some bullshit. Yeah. But they had a job to do, so yeah. they did it. But there, it, there's I, there's no way a firefighter is going to look at that and say, oh, yeah, that's just a busted coolant thing. Okay. And, and one, of the, one of the things when several of these guys, they're looking for a specific person who has a name they even identified that you never, they never found his body. But I forget it right now. But they're looking for this person, and they, the guy says he's in there as he's dying out. And they open the door to where this guy is, and it's just open to the world. It's yep. just a blown-out disaster scape. Actual hell, yeah. Um, Vasily is ordered to go to the roof. He clearly does not want to. Other firefighters are starting to get sick. Um, again, you know, first sign of acute radiation poisoning is vomiting. Mm-hmm. Um, as he goes further toward the core, ominous music plays. Um, Akimov is getting an update. He still thinks they need to get water to the core. He says if the core did explode, they're dead anyway. Not technically true. He doesn't know that. Um, Leonid actually walks off with Akamov to get water to the core. So basically what they're they're saying they're going to do here is that there are um, coolant tanks that are offline because the control room is dead. Mm -hmm. And they need to go down there, manually open them to flood water into the core, presumably to try to cool it down because they still think the core is intact. Um, Akimov as he leaves says to watch the panel but the guy's like well it's not working (laughs) and he says we'll just watch it anyway yeah exactly which which Um, is again they're giving people tasks to cope with the disaster where you have a job now I have a job now we go do our jobs and yeah really the relationship between these two guys Akimov and Leonid what what's his last name again Leonid Toptunov, I think. Toptunov, yeah. Yeah. They they really have a touching relationship of where Toptunov is very much a junior member of this team or whatever else, and and Akamov is supporting him and helping him. And as they go down there to a mission that they know they're literally going to probably die at, because they know what's happened, they know know what's happened, but they just can't accept it. Um, We want to get to them turning the valves now, we want to get to it in order as we go through it. Uh, well, I would like to pose a question to you, Please. and then we'll continue with the recap. I, but my very first watching of this, and I had this discussion with Sarah on Friday, um, I thought these two guys were going down to commit suicide. Effectively, because I th- they are. I, well, I, but I thought they were doing it out of a sense of guilt. Like, hey, we fought, we were the ones controlling this, right? Yeah. By all accounts, they likely pressed the button that dropped the coolant rods in, that exploded the core. And they were like, I, I don't know how to fix I can't fix this. But mm-hmm. this is my one last attempt to do something good, knowing it's going to kill them. Yeah. And, and knowing that it's probably ultimately futile, but it's the thing to do that they still have left within their power to do. And yeah. it, it's made wonderfully ambiguous at the stage because we've not seen the disaster happen. They've We've started after that. We've seen the explosion. We've seen their reactions immediately afterwards. But we don't actually know what occurred. And we won't know to the end of this series. And so these wonderfully haunting lines of them just come repeating themselves, we did nothing wrong, don't worry, we did nothing wrong. And then the younger guy ending in tears saying, but we did. Oh, yeah, you're reading off my notes, we were getting there. 
the morning shift is showing up. Yeah, no morning. They're confused as what the hell's going on. Um, I, I, I go love ahead. that they immediately address the theory of where no, they're saying the hydrogen tanks exploded, and the guy looks at them like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me too. Just like they, they, within a second, they know that that obviously isn't what just happened. So funny. The people who actually work at the plant are like, ah, no, if hydrogen tanks blew up, it would be much smaller than this, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, down in the bunker, Viktor Brukhanov is briefing party officials. He says, everything is stable, but immediately brings up preventing a panic. One person questions the uptake. Shout out to this guy. He points out that men are vomiting and have burns outside. He's like, what, what are you talking about? Like, we need to get the hell blowing. out of here. We have to get out of here. And then Maester Lewin speaks up and he gives a speech about Lenin. Communism says they're going to cut the phone lines to prevent panic and seal off Pripyat. He delivers about the most Soviet line ever. It is my experience that when the people ask questions that are not in their own best interest, they should simply be told to keep their minds on their labor and leave matters of the state to the state. I can't believe this dumb fucker is the one making decisions. And I guess I can, but it's just fucking horrific. I mean, the, the rest of the line is just delightful in terms of just the blind loyalty of it, of where you continue. We, we leave matters of the state to the state. We seal off the city. No one leaves and cut the phone lines, contain the spread of misinformation. That is how we keep the people from undermining the fruits of their own labor. <sighs> Master Lewin, what are you doing? Yeah, Master Lewin, not not a good move there. Um, we cut to a guy named Anatoly uh, Sidnikov. Anatoly Sidnikov. He comes to the bunker to give Dyatlov, Brukhanov, and Foman an update. He says they found another disimeter that goes to a thousand, and it burned out the second they turned it on. Hilarious. <laughs> Uh, Brukhanov immediately is like, ah, they send us Mos- typical Moscow. They send us shit equipment. <laughs> which, which even Sidnov is willing to kind of shrug it. It's like, okay, that's possible that it just burned out because it was a bad device. But, of course, but, competent guy that he is. I mean, what, what was, I got I the chart here of what Sidnov's role is, but he really is on top of things. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll look for his role here when, when I can find it. But as, Yeah, I'll, I'll continue the recap. But um, he, they find another dosimeter, a smaller one from, like, the um, military fire department, I think he says. Exactly. They found a second one. It goes to 200 and it maxed out. Still a lot of denial, which is somewhat understandable, considering they had no idea it was possible for an RBMK reactor to explode. I don't think this, this should be talked about. They didn't know this could possibly happen. So, of course, there's denial. Um, so, in some respects, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit sympathetic to... Um, uh, Brukhanov and Foman. Yeah, uh, Not Dyatlov at all. Just to finish the thought, he was the deputy chief operational engineer. So he's a really high-ranking member of the plant that's telling them this. He's just a As of, he should be. He's like a step below Dyatlov, essentially. Yeah, I mean, this dude is really competent. Um, and then Dyatlov vomits and falls down. Um, great sign. Uh, Sidnikov is ordered to go back and look into the core. <laughs> he says no, but they push the issue. Again, Soviets versus Americans... That I'm telling you, in America, that guy would have been like, you can fuck yourself. You go look at it. I'm not doing it. I, I, I love his reactions he's having to tell these people this. Because he knows this is not what they want to hear. And that he could be punished for merely speaking truth to power right now. Of where he's just having to just struggle with the idea of, it maxed out at 200 road again. I, I tested it. He was my best man. We double checked it. And then when they're confronting him with, are you suggesting the core exploded? I mean, how could that yes. happen? And he's, it's almost he like, like, I don't know, yeah. It's a, it's a whisper. It's a whisper when he says, yes. Of course, he's, he's, having, he's having to admit something that he knows is probably going to end his career to even yep. admit. And yep. then, he, I love his line, too, of when they confront him with, um, you're a nuclear engineer, 
So please tell me how an RBMK reactor core explodes. Not a meltdown, an explosion. I'd love to know. And just the, the sarcasm that Foman's putting into this just makes him such an asshole. And Sikhanov has to admit, I can't. Are you stupid? No. Then why can't you? I I don't see how it could explode. And then Foman walks away center side. But defiantly, in a line that he knows probably can end his career, but he has to say because it's his job, is to turn to him and say, but it did. Yep. Yeah, Sidnikov is is a really sympathetic character here. Yeah, especially with uh, what they just do to him immediately after Dyatlov exits stage acute radiation poisoning left. Yeah, I mean, Dyatlov is there with all his bluster, like, I'll go look at the corpse. Yep. <gasps> oh, actually, I can't. Sorry. Take me to Moscow. Uh, so Sidnikov is tasked with this. Um, we cut to a really heartbreaking scene. You you touched on it earlier, but it's Akimov and Leonid. Um, or Leonid? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. I'm going to say Leonid. Uh, are walking to turn the water pumps on. And Leonid starts crying, and he says, I'm sorry. And Akimov says, there's nothing to be sorry for. I told you we did nothing wrong. Leonid said, but we did. <laughs> but we did. And that's why it I continues to make me think, like, these guys are just kind of, they're, they're, they're not going to leave this alive, right? No. And we, if memory serves, we see Topdanov again later, of where one of our key, our key characters goes to interview him. I don't think we see Akimov again. We do uh, see him again. We do. Two different times, and I'll get to it. Okay. Um, well, we see him. At, I remember we see him in the hospital. I remember that part. We see them. Yeah. Him. That. So that's one. Yeah. And then we also see him later with the when he's. Anyway, we'll get to it. Yeah. Um, this is a rough one. Sidnikov walks onto the roof. He's escorted by guards. So Essentially, you know, at gunpoint. Yeah. So this isn't like a, I guess it's not really fair for me to continue to be like, well, in the USA, we tell him because he had an armed guard. Now, I feel really bad for this armed guard. This guy had no idea that he's going up there to get cancer because he's going to get cancer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just thinks he's just walking a guy to something. Like he has no con. I mean, I, I don't think these guards have any concept of where they're walking into. But anyway, Sinikov walks onto the roof. Uh, he sees that the core is explo- exposed. Haunting music plays. His face turns. It's immediately beat red. <sighs> that Geiger he counter noise goes off. <laughs> he knows he's dead. Uh, and then we cut to Dyatlov being taken to Moscow. Yeah, and we see him pulled out through a plant which is already dying. He's walking past people that are literally dying around him as he's... Is this his moment of realization? Does he ever have a moment of realization? Well, you know, no, because think of the last episode. But anyway, we'll get to it. But um, Sinikov gives the update to Brokhanov and Foman, who are still in the bunker. and And it cuts away, music plays, and it seems like they're yelling at him. Yeah, like I'd, I think they're still saying this can't be, but how can you look at Sidnikov and not know? Well, I mean, his fucking face is burning. Like, yeah. of course, there's acute le- levels of radiation. Like, cre- cre- credit to this actor. I I don't, I don't know offhand who this guy is. Let me look it up while I'm talking to you. But he does so wonderfully in the role of, so- of Sokinov. Jamie Sives, look him up later. Um, but he has just such wonderful expressions and reactions of just a character utterly resigned within himself to his death in this moment of when yep. of his little his little active when he finds it when he when he they tell yep. him you should go look at the core he says what no i won't do that it's just, you see him being a professional being an intelligent person knowing it's his death and then his just little shuffle walk to the core and the face he has as he turns back and the face he has when the two of them is where it, there's no dialogue it's a more effective that isn't as you just look in on them just yelling and berating him as he's just looking at the table certain of his own death from what they've just done to him. It's and can we heartrending. Can we go ahead and anoint 
dying of acute radiation poisoning, the worst way to die. And credit to this show. I knew it was bad. I knew it was painful. I knew it was unpleasant. But good God, this show makes it real. I yeah. had no concept, truly, of the... This, I add this to the top list of ways you can die, the worst possible ways you can die from what this show shows me it to be. I Spencer, have no idea. Let's make a pact right now, me and you. Yeah. If either one of us get exposed to an open nuclear reactor core. Bullet to the fucking head. Three bullet to the head. I got bullet you, to the head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same with me. All right. We cut back to uh, the nurse, the nurse we saw before who was with that incompetent old man. And she <laughs> wakes up and there's movement as people are being taken into the hospital. Finally, people are starting to roll into the hospital. Um, she looks out the window and there are tons of cars coming. So she knows this is kind of a big deal. Yeah. You, you know what's bad when there's when every single ambulance is coming and more trucks are coming after that. Unmarked military vehicles are coming after that. It's like, oh, okay, this this is ha- this is something new now. Which I think she suspected because she's kind of like, remember the, the, the scene we saw her before? She's like, nobody's come in yet from the fire. And she was expecting people to come. Well, now she's getting it. Yeah. Um, we cut to my man Legasov, uh, who we saw in the opening sequence. He's waking up to his phone ringing. Legasov, like you, late sleeper. Um, it's just right. He's, he's clearly waking up and it's it's very bright outside. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> doing, a, doing a late night Spencer uh, read, uh, maybe the Soviet version of a Wikipedia spot. <laughs> Of all the things that were in the Soviet Union, I guarantee you Wikipedia did not exist. No, he certainly did not. <laughs> um, he's waking up, his phone's ringing, and there's another, another appearance uh, of the cat. I like the cat. Mm-hmm. Question for you, Spencer. We both are have been cat owners. Uh, we both are cat people. How do you, when, I don't understand how they get cats to cooperate when filming. <laughs> cats aren't like dogs. You can't fucking train cats to do anything. Like, how, how do they get this cat to... to to play ball. I've heard in theory there are such a thing as trained cats. I re- reject that reality and substitute my own. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's just one of the things where I just assume they just have a camera going on a cat for like three hours and they just cut in the couple seconds that work. Because that's the only <laughs> way exactly, I can imagine it happening. That's exactly what I thought happened. I thought they were like, all right, we, well, we have a day scheduled of just cat. <laughs> Let's get all of our cat scenes ready for the last day of filming. We'll just get them all done then. <laughs> Uh, on the phone is Boris Sherbina, head of the Bureau for Fuel and Energy. We've talked mm-hmm. about him before. He said there was an accident at Chernobyl. No big deal. Uh, a fire because the steam control tank exploded. I love this little moment. Legasov corrects him that it's the control system tank. Mm-hmm. Fitting start to their relationship. Um, Legasov immediately asks about the core. Um, Sherbina explains that it's fine and Gorbachev has pulled together a committee to deal with the accident. And Legasov is on it. Legasov is told the 3.6 Rodigan number, and he is concerned at that level. And he starts talking about an evacuation, yeah. but is cut off. I love that, that the window that gives into just the scale of the delusion that the people on the ground are operating in, of where they've just been reassured that 3.6, it's not great, but, you know, we can deal with it. The moment somebody who actually knows his shit is told that, his immediate reaction is says, Whoa. no, that's actually significant. You should evacuate the Surratt, and then he's cut off. Yep, yep. And then we cut to now. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. This is the hardest scene. Uh, Leonid and Akimov are still down. This is the next morning. They have been down there for fucking six, seven hours. Turning and they're still holding those uh, those those water tanks open manually, and visibly dying. Visibly dying. I mean, they're they're burning, and it's all they can do to even stay upright. And they're flowing water to a cord that isn't there anymore. I think that the quote was from one character earlier. You're, you're just flooding a ditch. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, hard to watch, but I got to tell you, you have to applaud the heroism here. Uh, I, I do think that the two guys are, are committing suicide, but I do think there's something heroic in their actions. They're saying, I don't, I don't think I can help, but there's a 1% chance this is helping and I'm going to do it. It was, I'm going to talk about this at the end of the episode, but I think scenes like this are really interesting in terms of what the modern Russian reaction to the show has been and how much it shifted from when the show first started to where it ended in terms of how they eventually ended up in thinking of the show. But we'll get to that once, once we're done with the recap. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we cut to a shot of all the smoke coming from the fire, heading toward Pripyat. Ominous music plays, of course, because it's nuclear fallout. Mm. Um, and kids are walking to school and a fucking haunting image of a bird dropping dead out of the sky ends the episode. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong too, but don't we already start to see the forest turn red? Yep. Which, yep. which, which is a bit of an exaggeration. It took a while, but it did happen of where it's now called the red forest just from the radiation going out in a path, killing everything in its path as it goes. But yeah, the haunting scene of just little kids skipping in their perfect little outfits in a very w- pretty well-done Soviet-planned town without any concern of what's going on as a bird falls out of the sky and twitches and dies on the ground. Insane. Yep. So, there we go. And, well, first episode in, how committed were you already to this show? Because, God, I was down to stream through every episode, that, uh, 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 like, right then, right there. So I actually watched it live, mm-hmm. not lot, not live, but like it, it, this show played on a Monday night. Mm-hmm. Weirdly <laughs> enough, on yeah. HBO, HBO usually de- just debuts their quality content on Sunday. But um, and I watched it the Tuesday after, um, just because I'm a weirdo and I'm locked into what HBO is doing. I knew this was coming, mm-hmm. and I watched it. and I thought, okay, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't know how many episodes it's going to be, but I'm in for whatever because yeah. it was that well done. Now I was really disturbed by the radiation poisoning and it gets way worse spoiler alert (laughs) and so i was i was like i I mentioned earlier in this podcast i begged my wife to watch the show initially i did i can just tell you the first couple weeks i told her i don't know this might be a little this might be a bridge too far bridge Uh um (laughs) but once i watched the whole thing i said no you, you it this is too good you have to watch it like it's just Again, I you know I put it up there with something like a John Adams, mm-hmm. as far as what you what did you call it like a historical historical documentary drama. Oh, historical it. drama. There you go, as one of the best ever. Yeah, uh, and and I I got that impression upon episode one. Yeah, and I think I even told you did, didn't I tell you you need to be watching this? You did. You told me immediately after you watched the episode. It's like okay, we're, this is the next thing we're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I had a similar thing to you of where I mentioned you know, this, this show looks really good from the trailers. We should watch it. I don't really want to watch it. So I just sat down and watched half of the first episode and I stopped and came to her and said, I want to be with you to watch this. This is something I think we need to share. This is, oh. It was that good. And she yeah. came in and watched it and we powered through five episodes in like two days. Just because yeah. yeah, it was that incredible of a show. Yeah. But, and, uh, you know, it, the, listeners to the channel know um, that... The, in the latest Whiskey on the Weekends, um, I tricked you. Um, <laughs> whiskey on the Weekends is a podcast we do where we all send whiskey to each other, and then we drink it, and we talk about it, and we just fuck around. And I lied to Spencer about which bottle he was drinking um, just to see if he could tell the difference. Uh, spoiler alert, he kind of didn't. Oh, kind of did. 
it, it kind of did kind of didn't i started off okay and then immediately started saying what everybody else did once they all disagreed with me i was like okay well maybe i got it wrong L listen to the experts here I, a very soviet reaction to the situation and i could tell spencer was was really deep into chernobyl because we talked about spencer sending the next round of whiskey out to everybody and he mentioned sending me something with like a long half-life <laughs> He's gonna send me radiation poisoning, and when he t he texted that to us, I was like, "Oh, okay." Spencer Spencer is deep in Chernobyl yeah. right now. I was I was episode four right then. I was watching you know them <laughs> research what was happening to the workers of this plant. I was like, "Okay, we'll see if I can get something imported from Priapit to send to him anytime soon." So I would like to point out just how good this show is. And before we get to Spencer's Wikipedia spiral of the episode, mm -hmm. um, it is so good that I Lee. You guys know me. I sat down with multiple web pages open and eh, to some varying degree of success figured out how a nuclear reactor worked. That's investment right there. That is some shit that I would never in a million years would have told you I'd do. But I totally did it because I was like, you know what? If we're doing this, if we're doing the review on Chernobyl, this show is so good, I got to put the work in. Yeah, it, it, it was really fascinating to me when you text me and saying, I'm learning how a nuclear reactor works because I need to know and people need to know it's that important. <laughs> I was like, man, this guy is down for this. <laughs> I was. I, I, anyway, that, that, that just points out to everybody how, how great I think this show is. So yeah. now, 10 out of 10, super happy with it. Um, anything else you want to talk about? I think you, you want to talk about a little history before we jump. Or uh, no, no, the Russian. Um, yeah, have, the Russian response. Yeah. Have you have you seen it? Have you seen the Russian response? Uh, well, here's what I know. There's two different stages of it. I know that they were initially happy with it. They were initially not, and that they initially got. They eventually got to a point where now Putin is saying they're just going to redo it. So this is akin to the Game of Thrones uh, petition. Mm-hmm. Where the fans were like, I, I wasn't happy with the end. Like, we just petitioned to do it over again. Except that Putin can do that. <laughs> so he's just doing it over again. They're just going to do a Russian version, which I think he said includes a CIA agent. Who, yeah, it does. Who sabotaged the plant. What yeah, the fuck it does. Are you talking about? <laughs> this is, uh, it, it basically is a two-stage response. The response, particularly from initially to the, to this show was is that this is an indictment of the Soviet of the of the Russian people of the Russian government this is the west it's thumbing down its nose at us this is unacceptable this is made up history we've got our own show that's coming out even better apparently they had started the show in production when they heard we were making a the west was making a show about chernobyl hadn't even seen it yet but they're like we need a response ready to go and as you said this response is literally saying that this disaster was caused by a CIA agent going in there and inflicting plant sabotage to recause an explosion. That this was the West doing this to us, and now they're offering a commentary blaming us for their own crimes. So, remember when Trump stood up there and said, Russia, if you're listening? Yeah. So, Russia, if you're listening, let me explain something to you. This show has factors improved how Americans think about Russians. Yeah. And we really didn't like you. Mm -hmm. Still probably don't. But the heroicism showed at the individual level of the people who worked in Chernobyl. And Sherbina especially, a party man coming in and doing the things that he did. Yo, this is a very good thing for you guys it, from the perspective of a Westerner. And what's interesting is that it appears that a lot of members of the Russian of the Russian public. Well, we're saying Russian. This is this is a disaster that happened in the Soviet Union. So you've got you know Belarus and Ukraine that are actually, the actually ones that are on the border of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
It's, it's, it's in, I think it's like in the most northwest corner of Ukraine. It's right on the border with Belarus. So it's really affecting both. But this is a Soviet response to the Russians, who are the heirs of the Soviet Union, who were offering some of this main criticism commentary on it. But once the show was done, and they saw what the show was really, in many ways, trying to do, a lot more of them have come out with positive comments. Of where a lot more of them have recognized that, if anything, as you said, the show's offering one of the most profound compliments to the dedication of the Soviet people in confronting this disaster and fixing it. The costs they were willing to pay. That We get a wonderful speech from Sherbina, an episode or two from now, about the mindset of the Soviet Union in terms of what you are willing to pay to make the present work. Uh, and just, the, as you said, we almost assume the default Western response to this would be would be the very individualized, fuck you, I'm out. Whereas their response is, I've let's received, fix it. Let's yep. fix it. I've received orders to fix this. This is the cost of fixing this. This is what we have to endure to fix this. It is our duty to make this happen. And that is a, just a dedication to the public, a dedication to the state, which is just heartrendingly portrayed and offers a profound compliment to what, you know, whatever indictment can, and can rightful condemnation it offers to the Soviet government and the Soviet apparatus that allowed this to occur, it offers nothing but sympathy and congratulations to the Soviet people who worked affectively and suffered to prevent the rest of the world from having to endure it. And it, it's been nice to see even Soviet government ministers that recognize that whatever else they want to say about the show and their thoughts about how the disaster occurred, they've been complimenting the show for that for recognizing what I really don't think has been recognized enough. I mean, I knew about the brass tacks, I knew about the numbers, I knew about the situation, but the show does such a wonderful job of portraying the human element of confronting it that I offer my most profound congratulations to them for that. A uniquely Soviet problem, a uniquely Soviet solution. <laughs> yeah, we're going um, to get the, the, the idea of a biobot later, and if that's not the most Soviet shit ever, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's the recap. We already have best line. Um, Spencer. Are there any other lines you want to mention, though? Because there, there are a lot of good ones. Or I think we covered a lot of them. Yeah, I think I covered them. I mean, I, I would say that, that for me, it would be, you know, of course, the initial line. Legasov says um, the line, not because I like it, but because it, it's very indicative from Maester Lewin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, Leonid, when he says, you know, but we did. You know, yeah. we, we, we did do something wrong here. Uh, Those are really the three that jump out at me. And just in terms of the effect it's having on the internet, I would just put on top of that everything Dyatlov says. Because you cannot find a video, a web page, anything else that's discussing nuclear energy without there now being a Dyatlov quote on it. It is so thoroughly, its meme potential was apparently off the charts, yeah, and he's showing that. Yeah, his 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 meme Rodigans, like uh, <laughs> like four thousand. It's off the scale. <laughs> I mean, it, it it is. I mean, Paul Rudd does a wonderful job with the role. He really makes you hate this man so goddamn much. Um, and he has some very memorable lines in this. I, I would throw on top of it as well. We talked about them all, but pretty much any scene or any line that uh, Sitkinoff is in, or that's that guy, the, yeah, that, yeah, the guy's yeah. name, is just yeah, very yeah. well played, very heartrending, and very and very well set out. But agreed. Uh, All right. Well, Spencer, what have you looked at on Wikipedia recently? Yeah, one thing I'm going to discuss over a couple episodes, uh, just because the result of me spiraling and reading about the Chernobyl disaster also led me to be exposed to other nuclear events that have occurred throughout our history. Ooh, ooh, exposed. That's a that's a rough <laughs> word. Yeah, I felt it was appropriate given the nature of this subject matter. Um, <laughs> but Chernobyl was in no way the first major nuclear accident, and I want to. Coda this, then I'm at the end of the show going to talk about how 
both of us ultimately, despite watching the show, despite knowing what we are, are pretty pro nuclear power. Is that a free, is that a fair thing to say? Hundred percent. Yeah. Now um, that I completely understand it. But it needs perspective and it needs acknowledgement of what its dangers are when people who are not equipped to handle it or people who don't understand what the risks are are put in charge of it. And there is a long history of those incidences going back to some of the first moments that we started fiddling with nuclear power. And so I've been on a spiral leading about those. And I'm going to talk about a couple of those before I maybe go on different topics over different episodes. That sound interesting? Yep. Okay, I'll start with the first, just because I'll just, I'll just cover one of this episode, because it's been a long episode, a lot of history, so we'll just focus on one incident for right now, but uh, Lee, have you ever heard of the Demon Core? Yes, only because I got in a similar Wikipedia spot. <laughs> so, so I'd like to point out, I predicate this whole segment on kind of making fun of you for going into Wikipedia spirals. You did the same shit. I totally did the same thing, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and again, th- th- this is what's so great about a well-done historical drama where it's going to change aspects of the history it's going to consolidate things it's going to tell a coherent narrative in a way that history almost never is but a well-done show a show that is this well-grounded in history and tells such an interesting story the natural effect it has on people particularly you and me is to read as much more as we can because they've made it so fascinating so engrossing that i don't want to stop learning more about it yep but one of the very first nuclear instances that occurred was at Los Alamos, where we were making the very first nuclear devices. The uh, little boy and fat man that we dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively. What people don't necessarily know is that uh, we didn't just drop those two devices and go, okay, we're done, they're going to surrender now. We were aiming to drop like 12 more. We'd already firebombed most of the major Japanese cities. Now we were going to take the ones that we purposely preserved so that they would be excellent test subjects for the effect of, nuclear, of a nuclear device and irradiate them. Uh, we had a third device that was ready to go that we were planning on. It, for we were real? planning on. We had a third device that we already were building at Tintinium, and wow. that they were shipping. Yeah, I'm learning something, Spencer. Thank you. Oh yeah, that. Uh, they were already they were already building it Tinian. Uh, they were planning on dropping it on or ready to drop it on August nineteenth. Uh, so it was basically just a week of delay between when Fat Man was dropped on uh, Nagasaki and they were having the next bomb ready to go. It didn't necessarily have an assigned target that we know of. It's perfectly possible that it was going to be dropped on either. Well, Tokyo would 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 have been a possible hit given that it was the capital, but it was already heavily firebombed. Uh, Kyoto was a very popular target, except they figured that if they literally killed the emperor, that could have political implications. So it's pretty likely they were going to drop it on Kokuro, uh, which is in uh, Kitakyushu, which is a major city of more than a million people today. It was actually the original target of the second bomb, but there were too many clouds, and so they went to a secondary target in Nagasaki. But they were going to fix that problem with a new bomb. God, that sucks for the people in Nagasaki, right? They shit. It's a cloudy day, therefore I'm dead. Yeah, it essentially was a cloudy day, therefore let's miss our main target. Let's go to another target. And even then, in Nagasaki, they missed. They dropped it into day. a valley off the side and just killed everybody there, rather than actually hitting their intended target. But they were getting a third bomb ready to go, and they were part of the threat they sent out to Japan was, we're going to keep dropping these till you stop. And on August 15th, Japan announced the surrender with 
Two main motivations being A, they're drop they're firebomb well main motivations being being they've already firebombed every one of our cities, but they didn't really bother to mention that because the Japanese just endured it. They've dropping nuclear devices that we don't understand, they apparently have more. And oh yeah, the Russians just invaded and destroyed our entire army in Manchuria. We kinda need to stop now. So they stopped on August 15th, four days before this next device was gonna be ready to be dropped on wherever it was going to go. Can we can we draw a parallel here to like war and an MMA fight? Sure. What are you doing? Well, when you, you know, in an MMA fight, like you get somebody in an arm bar or, you know, an ankle twist or something, usually people tap pretty quickly. Yeah. The Japanese waited till that bone was broken. Japanese Japanese waited until we were hitting them with the now pulled off severed limb in terms of yeah. the situation that they were in. It was Astonishing just, how long they went. In part because... Japan was no longer a political-run government. It was no longer really effectively an emperor-run It was a military state. And the military was not in any way about to admit that they had failed. And were willing to make the people of Japan endure whatever it took to just be defiant in the face of death. Which, if we were talking about, just, you know, very authentic, on-point re- na- national responses, that was a very auth- authentic Japanese response at the time. But... They surrendered because the emperor purposely intervened and had to actually endure an attempted coup from the military rather than have them accept it. But they surrendered on August 15th, four days before this device was going to be deployed. This device in question, talk about, was basically built around the same parameters as the Fat Man bomb. It was a core, which was later known as the Demon Core, about 3.5 inches in diameter of a mixed plutonium-gallium alloy. Uh, Just to give you a hint of how dense this thing is, this thing is 3.5 inches, in total diameter, but weighs 14 pounds. That's the level of density that you're seeing when you're talking about plutonium at play here. Jeez. Yeah. This is a, a hell of a hell of a device. That's, you get two Zion two, Williamson dense. <laughs> you get two and a half milk jugs compressed into a device that doesn't that's smaller than the palm of your hand. Um, it is devised to be just below critical mass, subcritical. Critical mass is essentially the necessary amount of plutonium in place to generate a constant nuclear fission to constantly generate energy to constantly emit radiation it's meant to be five i know what that is you what would you say i said i know what that is yeah it's meant to be five percent below that which most of the way that they built the fat man device which was our major nuclear uh, bomb for several years after this was they would take this device was about five percent below and they would essentially compress it a little bit and that compression would be enough to render it super critical prompt critical and then boom for massive massive release there's a couple other ways you can do that. You can compress it. You can essentially sur- you can essentially make it a little bit bigger, adding a little bit extra nuclear fuel to it. Or you can reflect these neutrons that you talked about back into it. Because most of the time, the neutrons are just firing off randomly in various places, in which in the nuclear reactor, they're being caught by the water, the steel, and the concrete that's around it to keep it in place. But in a nuclear bomb, you want to direct them in so that all the nuclear fuel you know, reacts and blows up. One of the tests that we continued to do at Los Alamos immediately after the, uh, they had no more active need of dropping these things, but still had orders to produce them for the new nature of what they were going to be used for, uh, was to test how close each of these cores was to being supercritical. Because that was an important part of knowing what additional reaction they needed to put on it to generate the most nuclear effect, use up all the nuclear fuel in an efficient manner. Because a lot of the initial devices, particularly Little Boy, were very inefficient, weren't using most of their nuclear fuel the way they wanted to. They wanted these to be much more lethal and kill more people. Um, In the immediate days after the uh, Japanese surrender, they were performing a variety of 
tests using what were called neutron reflectors, essentially bricks of like tungsten carbide that they were surrounding this core with so that all of the neutrons that it's just constantly firing out um, are now being reflected back in. And they're seeing how many of those bricks they can assemble around this core before it goes super critical. Of course, this being 1945 and us still flirting with the concept of what this is, this was all being done by hand in an open room in just a regular wooden office building. Yikes. Yeah, we want to assign a lot of blame to the Soviet Union for, you know, their various problems and deficits, whatever else. We were pretty damn ignorant and pretty damn stupid about the risks we were taking in the initial part of when we were flirting with nuclear energy, too. Uh, Question for you. Did, have you ever, and sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm no, you're derailing fine. you here, but haven't, didn't you hear the story about a nuclear bomb that got dropped in like Eastern North Carolina? I'm going to talk about the Goldsboro drop here, here in an episode or two, because that okay. is freaking, uh, wild, we'll, we'll get wild. into, we'll get into this of where the, uh, the U S military has no small amount of pride that they have never once had any nuclear disaster with respect to their nuclear generators aboard submarines aircraft carriers, destroyers, cruises, all the rest. We're all, they're all nuclear-powered nowadays, at least the majority of them are. That is really ignoring the fact that they have straight-up lost lots of nuclear devices of where we, they, they've, had, they've just been carrying them in bombers that have come apart and the devices have dropped on American soil, on foreign soil, and have never been recovered. As Lee was referencing, I'll talk about it in greater detail in a later episode, there is a nuclear device that is buried in a swamp outside of Goldsboro, North Carolina, which, to put in perspective, is about an hour, about you know, 50 miles an hour southwest of, southeast of Raleigh, the Triangle area. Great barbecue. Yeah, great, nice little town, driven through it before. Um, there is a nuclear device that is buried in a field in a swamp there that was never recovered. They don't know where it is. And they're just having to constantly monitor the radiation on this field to see whether it ever just comes apart <clears throat> and starts contaminating the area. What and that's fuck? just a thing we deal with now. <laughs> so we'll, I'll discuss the many cases of when various aspects of both the U.S., Soviet, and other nations' military have just messed up when it came to nuclear devices and have lost them or they've just been exposed to the surrounding environment. But this happened from literally, I mean, the first incident that occurred with respect to this, what later known as the Demon Corps, happened two days after they were intending to deploy it, six days after the Japanese surrender. That's how early on we're already starting to see the problems of our hubris. Of where this particular research uh, researcher, a Harry Dalgian, who was like 24 years old when this happened, was assembling these nuclear bricks by himself in an office building around a plutonium core. It's him and a Ooh. private guard that's standing like 30 feet away. No one else. And he's doing this by hand. Of where he's just kind of assembling them in this little kind of shape around this to see how close he can get it to supercritical, which again is an active nuclear reaction. The air will turn blue around this thing when it does that. He doesn't want that to happen. He's testing as it gets closer to it so he can pull away, but he's doing this by hand alone with little bricks of tungsten carbide just moving into position. This wow. is the scale of our scientific rigor we're going about these experiments in the early going. The problem happens of when he's got this thing kind of sitting in a bowl in the middle of the sphere of where he's moving the little, he's moving the little tungsten carbide bricks around to get them closer and closer so that he's reflecting enough neutrons back so he can get his, see how close it is to the supercritical point. Because they think it's about 5% away. Uh, 
he's realizes one's getting a little bit too close and he's trying to stack them together and so he picks one up and he makes a critical error in terms of he carries it over the core not around it over the core uh-oh this is a problem because he drops it right on uh, top of the core uh-oh uh, this means that, A, it's compressed, which is, again, what we learned was the best way to make these things just explode. Uh, and point number two, it is now directly on top of it, reflecting all the neutrons back into it. This thing instantaneously goes supercritical and blue shifts the air around. Yep. He, by hand, realizing that he's fucked up, grabs the, reaches into this active nuclear oh reaction that's occurring, For grabs the brick... And throws it away. He literally immerses himself in the blue to grab the brick and toss it away to stop this occurring. In the process, he, in the second that this occurs, takes about 300 rad of radiation. Which is enough to kill you, basically. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a fatal dose in a second. He, the, even the guards halfway across the room gets some limited exposure, but he's fine. Uh, as a result of this fatal exposure, he dies 25 days later from acute radiation poisoning. Um, uh, from, again, bullet, Spencer. Bullet. Yeah, he, the number of bullets that are being fired into every aspect of his DNA throughout his body is just hard to imagine. But he personally waded into this to stop the disaster that he caused, because otherwise you've just got a chain reaction that's going off in the middle of an office building with no one else there to stop it. So he put this to bed died as a result of it uh, three weeks later, and they put parameters in place that, okay, we've realized that there was some dumb here. Uh, We're going to put in new parameters in place so that we now can be reassured that this can occur by we're going to put more people in the room. We're not going to change anything else, but now there'll be more people in the room so that we can make sure this doesn't happen. Ugh. Um, they proceed to, again, continue to test this core for the period of basically the next year. They've known pretty early what the critical point of this thing is, what they need to do to make it supercritical. It starts to get to a point of when they're just really showing off. Of where they're just performing tests to show to friends and family and nuclear researchers and physicists and mathematicians that are coming in. This is, hey, look at us fiddle with this new technology we're messing with. Isn't this cool? Which is, again... Not really the level of safety you want to occur about this. Um, the lead researcher that is doing this is by the name of Lewis Alexander Slotten. He is so cavalier about the tests they continue to perform about getting to the supercritical point of this and seeing what how much they need to reflect back on it that during the majority of the experiments that he performed, he famously did it in cowboy boots and jeans. <laughs> which is, again, the most American fucking thing ever. Very American, yeah. <laughs> Uh, in on May twenty first, nineteen forty six. Well, again, they were showing this. They were doing this experiment lots of times, like dozens of times, just to show off to people about how close they can get it. Like you know, that's a smart thing to do. To the point that um, Richard Feynman, a famous mathematician, whatever else, watched this or at least heard about it was happening, and just kind of shook his head, walked away while saying over his shoulder, "You're tickling the tail of a sleeping dragon," and then just got out of the room. Nuclear edging. Um. Um, (laughs) on may 21st 1946 they're performing another experiment with respect to this core of where there's now like nine people in the room because you know new safety parameters yay um they are using greater safety parameters where they're behind radiation shielding they're 
this thing is kind of essentially set into a bowl of where they're now using tungsten carbide rather than bricks. It's two separate kind of hemispheres that surround the core. And they're basically just getting it closer and closer into it using what's supposed to be various little bits of metal that are kind of locking it into place. And you just move those little bits of metal so you can compress it closer and closer in a much more controlled way than just using bricks by hand. Unfortunately, Lewis Slotin was a bit of a, you know, as said, doing this in cowboy boots and jeans. So rather than use these little metal shivs that you could very carefully control and adjust remotely or whatever else, he's got two screwdrivers that he's just kind of wedged between the hemispheres of this tungsten carbide spheres that are around this. And he's just kind of rotating the screwdrivers to adjust how close it is. That, that, is, that is, again, the scientific tests that were performing in 19, May of 1946. Uh, due to a situation that I don't know exactly what happened, uh, I probably, I'm not sure if anybody really knows, uh, he slipped. And the screwdrivers fell out of place, and the tungsten carb, carb, carbide um, spheres that were neutron reflectors just fell and fully enclosed the core meaning every single bit of energy this thing is now giving off is being reflected back and into it. Yep. The air immediately ionizes. They taste metal. All of the entire room goes bright blue. Again, him realizing that he fucked up, he, by hand, reaches in, grabs the sphere, and flips it off. He, well, and I'll... I've seen the movie of this, and I'm curious to read more about from Wikipedia or whatever else about what exactly occurred, but according to something I've read, he basically orders everybody, stop where you are, drop everything that's metal, chalk where your location is, and then leave. And then in the room stays himself to, on the blackboard, calculate the radiation dose of every single person in the room as to what their potential risk would be based on their distance, based on what metal they were carrying, based on all other factors. It's eventually deduced that he essentially took, um, last time I said the guy took about 300 rad, uh, Mr. Slotin took about 1,200 rad. Whoa. In terms of his exposure. That's, to put it in perspective of the chart that we're going to put out, about 12 sieverts, which is one and a half times the fatal dose that will kill you even with modern treatment. And he's doing calculations after that. Oh, yeah. He's by hand calculating not only what dose he got, he's calculating the number of days it will take to kill him. And he predicts that everybody else in the room will live... One, another one of them suffered pretty severe radiation exposure from getting like uh, 200, rat, uh, 200 rad of exposure, but lived after intense treatment and survived for about 19 years after the incident before dying of probably radiation-related dose. He calculates yeah. his own survival as nine days. And he dies on the ninth day in abject pain. His math proven correct. Everybody else in the room gets exposed. <sighs> Almost all of them die of cancer, but it's kind of the thing of where they died of cancer between 19 and 50 years after the incident, so who exactly knows? Right, yeah. Uh, one guy actually died about two, uh, four years after the incident, but that was in Korea due to a bullet, so I'm not going to blame that one on radiation. But after this incident, they essentially decided, huh, maybe we don't want to do these by hand anymore. Maybe we want to <laughs> build a device that we can remotely manipulate these with. Huh, that seems smart. Maybe we'll stop killing our lead physicists this way through their own stupidity. And so they devised a device called the, I think if I got this correct, the Lady Godiva machine, which... What? <laughs> the chocolate? Uh, well, yes, or the story about the lady riding her husband's horse through town to take off taxes, something like that. 
but no, it, I remember the chocolate. Chocolate works too. It's called a conniving machine. It's a remote manipulation device that they devised to work with these things to again test the supercritical point that they essentially used for about 10 years afterwards until they again fucked up and so thoroughly irradiated it and damaged it from the energy being released, they had to not use it anymore. And made a Lady Godiva 2, which I think was used for another few decades and may still be in use. The Demon Core itself, as it was dubbed after it, kept killing researchers, which again, let's be fair to the Core. I don't think the Core was really killing that, me that many people rather than the physicists themselves through their own errors and just stupidity in these tests. But it was dubbed the Demon Core and was never used nor tested again. They debated using it in Operation Crossroads. That's the famous Bikini Atoll tests where we decided to take one of the most beautiful places in the world and irradiate it because reasons. Uh, and also blow up lots of ships because it looked cool. Uh, but found that the device was, after these instances, so actively radioactive they couldn't get near it enough to put it in a bomb to use. So eventually, through very, care very careful means, they melted it down and recycled its material into other cores, which, as far as I know, didn't go on and kill people due to some inherent evil of this device. But it's worth noting that, again, this was our first foray into nuclear power. These were the guys that built the devices that we used to help end World War II, that we used to begin the arms race that was the Cold War. And already it's apparent that at the very early stages we were really learning by trial and error as to what the dangers were and what the threats were. And it's apparent throughout our history of nuclear power that it can be done and used safely. That doesn't mean that it's safe if you're being cavalier about it. It doesn't mean if it's safe if you're not recognizing the dangers and risks and faults in what you're doing to be safe about it. And there is a sad and lengthy history of us continuing to... Uh, Learn that lesson the hard way to come. I will address a couple of the other major instances. Uh, another one that happened in the Soviet Union about 20 or 30 years before Chernobyl that is ranked only one step below in terms of the level of nuclear disaster uh, and actually was still being actively repaired at the time that Gorbachev was still premier. But that is for another episode, another discussion, uh, and I am looking forward to my continued Wikipedia to dive into everything else that the Chernobyl page leads me into. As are we all. Thank you, Spencer. That was great. Um, I like this sort of thread that you're going to do mm -hmm. of other nuclear disasters. I think that provides great context around the Chernobyl accident um, and gets away from this idea of, oh, well, all it was was the Soviets screwed up. Well, that's... Bah. I mean, yeah. this, is a, this is a power with incredible potential. It is... Well, I think we should even do a part of an episode maybe at the end of this about how this is, at least for large-scale nuclear generation, one of the cleanest ways you can do it, one of the most efficient ways you can do it in some ways. Um, doesn't mean that it is easy or safe if you're being dumb about it. Yep, completely agree. All right, Spencer, I had a good time chalking up with you about Chernobyl episode one. Again, this is the episode one, the premiere, the original, the OG Mangum Talks TV podcast. Spencer, anything else you want to say before we, before we go? We have found a new and wonderful show to discuss, my friend. Indeed. All right. I'll see you here next week for episode two. Thanks, everybody. See you. <laughs>